Yeah. Cool. Um, let me just pray for you before you begin. Please do. Thank you very much. I need your prayers. <laughs> um, Father, I thank you for Ian. I thank you for um, the message that he's prepared to share with us today. Um, and God, I pray that as he speaks to us, you would, um, you would give him the words to say. You would give him your peace. Um, and that um, you would really open our hearts to hear what you want to say to us this morning. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Thank you for leading so well. Um, as I said earlier, it is a tremendous opportunity to uh, be asked to preach. And uh, we are looking at a series in the book of Revelation, uh, looking at what Christ has to say to the church. And the title I've been given is, What Christ Thinks of the Church. And um, I was reminded, uh, I took a team of people, quite a long time ago now, I took a team of people uh, to Ukraine, and this young man was asked to speak at a women's prison. And he started like this, he said, Look me in the eye. Look me in the eye. I've got something important to tell you. Look me in the eye. I thought, wow, what a powerful way to start your preaching. And in a way, I think that we have a really important passage here. And uh, we have, in my opinion, what I would call a wake-up call to the church. Jesus is saying, wake up. Now, in the book of Ephesians, he's been looking at love, love for Jesus. And we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, just loving Jesus. But the emphasis this week is on the truth. Know the truth, seek the truth, live the truth, speak the truth. Do not be a people who compromise the truth. And that, in the essence, is the sermon. But let's have a look at what this passage says. Now, I'm not sure which way I'm meant to push this flicker. Am I meant to, what am I meant to do? Oh, thank you. Good man. We've got Oliver on the desk at the back working. Now, I'm sure you've seen where Pergamon is. Uh, Can you see it? Anyway, I got it off the internet. Pergamon is in green, and it was the capital of that area during the Roman times when this was written. You see the other churches all around there in southern Turkey. And the next one, please. This is much better. Yeah. And here is a picture off the internet of Pergamon today. You can see this great big amphitheater. If that's the, or is it a necropolis? I'm afraid I don't know. But anyway, whatever it is, and there was at that time lots of different temples uh, there. But because it was the main city, uh, it would be where emperor worship was rife, where they would bow down and say, Caesar is Lord. Now, can we have the next slide? There's a structure to the way that uh, these early letters are written to the churches. Fortunately for me, it falls into the structure. Some of them don't quite fall into the structure. First of all, you get a greeting, and then you get some description of Christ in the passage, some aspect of of Christ, and then you get something that Christ uh, commends, something that the church is doing well, that he's pleased with, but then you get something that Christ condemns, something that he is not pleased with. You then get an exhortation, a passionate urge to do something, and you also get a warning or a threat, 
And finally, you get a promise or a reward. That's the general structure of these letters to these churches. And as I say, fortunately for me, uh, this one falls perfectly. So it starts off, to the church in Pergamum, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. So there you get the introduction. And then you get a particular aspect of the character of Christ. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. And I don't know about you, but that rings a bell, doesn't it? You go to the book of Hebrews and you see, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and the spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitude of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. The power of the word of truth. And in the book of Thessalonians, when it's talking about Jesus Christ coming again, and it's talking about him overthrowing the lawless one, it says the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed, will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The awesome, mighty Son of God, emphasizing the sword of the Spirit, the word of truth. Next slide. Sorry, you see, I'm not used to this high-tech stuff, unfortunately. So we get a description of Christ carrying a sharp, double-edged sword, emphasizing the power of the word of truth. And this, in my opinion, what the emphasis is all about today. Seek the truth, know the truth, live the truth, speak the truth, no compromise, no compromise. And then we get um, a commendation, verse 13, it says, I know where you live, I know where you live, I know your situation, I know the difficulties you have, I know the ungodly world in which you live. Where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. Next slide, please. I commend you for remaining faithful to me. Jesus was pleased that they had remained faithful to them. And I thought about what Jesus said. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Where did Satan fall to? He fell to the earth. And by trickery and deception, he enticed Adam and Eve to disobey God. He brought the whole human race under captivity and his dominion. And Christ came to set us free. But Satan still dwells in this world, deceiving and tempting And from what I have read, the suggestion is that because Pergamum was the capital city of Asia, that is where there was a strong emphasis on um, emperor worship, where they would have to come and kneel before a lighted flame and put a piece of incense on the flame and say, Caesar is Lord. 
And of course, Christians could not do that. And Antipas, this man who died, could not do that. And I understand also there are many temples and many people worshipping false gods. And behind all these false gods and false temples is the deceiver, the liar, the destroyer. So I would say that maybe in certain places there is a greater emphasis on evil. Satan has a stronger influence, but his influence is everywhere. We live in the world. We live where Satan has an influence. And Jesus says, I know where you live. I know the ungodly world that you live. But I commend you for remaining faithful to me. And I don't know if somebody in this church was killed for their faith. How many of us would turn up next week? Would I turn up next week? I hope so. But look around. Look around. Maybe, maybe somebody in the church was killed. Maybe just an acquaintance. Maybe a friend. Maybe a relative. What would we do? Would we remain faith, faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ? I hope we would. What do we do in times of difficulty? What will we do when suffering comes? Because we're not exempt from suffering. We're not exempt from difficulties. One of the things that I have done is I have actually learnt the Apostles' Creed so that I know what I believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended to the dead. He rose, on the third day, he rose again from the dead and ascended to the right-hand side of God the Father Almighty, from where he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and of life everlasting. It helps me to know what I believe. I've also learned the gospel, that I know the gospel. I only say this, what will we do in the day of suffering? What will we do when it gets really difficult? Will we stand upon what we believe like this church does? He commends the church. I commend you for remaining faithful to me even when one of your people were killed. So he commends that, but now he has something that he is not so happy about. Verse 14 to 16. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. I would want to point out that this is not the whole church. If you read it, it says you have people there, you have some people there. It's not the whole church. You have individuals in the church who are practicing things of which I disapprove of what they are doing. 
And if you go back into uh, to Numbers, and I'm not going to turn back there, but you can read the story, Numbers chapters 25 through to 31, you'll find the story of Balak and Balaam. Very simply, Balak was the king of Moab. The Moabites were terrified of the Israelites. So he sent for a prophet or a sorcerer called Balaam. And he wanted Balaam to curse the Israelites. And I can't remember if it's six or seven times, but six or seven times uh, he called Balaam and Balaam went up, but never once did he curse the people of God because he could see that God's blessing rested upon them. He knew that his cursing would do no good because God's blessing rested upon them. But Balaam was a tricky fellow. And he advised Balak to get the Israelites to compromise. Get them to compromise the truth. He said, encourage the Israelite men to have sexual immorality with the Moabite women. Encourage them to attend the religious feast and sacrifice to the Moabite gods. And that was to compromise and to bow down before foreign gods. And Balak knew that by compromising, God would disapprove of the people of God. And they would lose the full blessing of God. He knew that if he could get them to compromise, that God would not be pleased and they would lose the full blessing of God. And he was encouraging this attitude, it doesn't matter. A little bit of sin here, a little bit of sin there does not matter. I cannot tell you exactly what the Nicolaitans were doing, but in my reading I understand again that the doctrine, the teaching was about compromise. It was implying that separation between Christianity and the occult was not essential. You could have your foot in both worlds. You could follow Christ, but you could also be involved in occult and sinful practices. It did not matter how you lived. You don't have to be extreme in following Christ. You know, a little bit of sin here, a little bit of sin there. It won't matter. You can keep your foot in both worlds. You can believe in Christ, but you can continue to do what you like. Next slide, please. But this I intensely dislike. Some compromise the truth. And compromise leads to weak and powerless Christians. The attitude that it doesn't matter, a little bit of sin here, a little bit of sin there, it 
does matter. Jesus wants to shout out this warning. It does matter. At this point, I started to think about compromise. And you can imagine on, uh, when you're preaching a sermon like this, you sort of start with yourself and you think, you know, Lord, am I compromising? In what areas of my life am I compromising? And my mind went back to an incident. I used to help with the kids' club quite a few years ago now with Angela and Meg. And uh, the youngsters come along. And I used to have fun with the youngsters. And I'd play jokes and tell stories and that. And for me, they were just jokes and just fun. Until one day, one of the youngsters said this. He said, Ian, you're a liar. Oh, that wasn't quite what I was intending. Ian, you are a liar. The way I speak, the way I behave, the things I watch, the things I think about, do I compromise the Lord? We can compromise the Lord in the way we speak. What about at work? Am I honest in my dealings with people? Do I compromise the truth by dishonesty? Is my word trusted? Do people trust me when I say something? Do I exploit other people for personal gain? I remember, fortunately it's a few years ago now, but I like making money. Probably a terrible thing to omit from the, from the pulpit. I like making money. You know, I like to wheel a deal. But I used to drive quite a hard bargain with people until somebody said to me one day, they said to me, Ian, everybody has to put food on the table. Everybody needs a decent salary. So I don't drive such a hard bargain these days. I do like the cut and thrust of bargaining. I do try to get a good deal. But am I exploiting people? Am I compromising the truth of Christ by the way I treat other people? I often uh, meet a couple of guys for coffee. And uh, we have a chat and it's a good time. And then at the end we just pray for each other. And this last uh, Thursday I I said to one of them, well I said to both of them, what could I pray for? But one of them said he wanted me to pray that um, for righteousness with my money. That's very interesting. I don't think I've been asked to pray for that before, but righteousness with my money. He was asking that he would use his money correctly. I know many here are incredibly generous, and you've supported the church, and I'm not really wanting to put any pressure on, but, but just it's made me think, how am I using my money? It's not my money. It's God's money. I'm just a steward. He lends it to me. I am a manager of God's money. Am I compromising God by using too much money for pleasure? You know, and how am I getting the money? Am I treating people well? I remember at Bible college, one of the Bible college lecturers said something that I went, oh, don't agree with that. And he said, He said this, he said, it's not what people say they believe that is important. I thought, huh? It's not what people say they believe that's important. 
It's actually what people do that tells you what they really believe. It's what you do will actually tell people what you really believe. So if you believe the truth, you will live the truth, you will seek the truth, you will speak the truth. What you really believe will be shown by how you live. I do need to also just mention this, but with what's on the TV these days, what's on the internet these days, Anybody who is on the internet knows how easy it is for these pictures to fly up out of nowhere. You know, when I was younger, we never had those sort of things. You know, life is very, very different. But it's so easy to get drawn into compromise through what we watch on the television and through what we look at on the internet. And I must touch on this because one of the major ways of compromise was through sexual immorality. So I am quickly looking around. But I have some very good friends. And I was, I was meeting last week, just last Saturday, with two really good friends. They have both been on the mission field with me. One was a leader in a large church, and he then became a pastor of a small church. He started with about 20 people, and in less than three years, he took the congregation to 250 people. He was a very good preacher. He was a very good teacher. He was a very good leader. The other guy came with me, and he came back from Ukraine, and he sold his business, and he started a charity And this charity really took off. He was digging wells in Africa. He was digging wells in India. He was doing community development problems. But both of these men have now had an affair. Both of them. And you think, how can it happen? How can it happen? And I met them on Saturday and I was listening to their conversations and I was talking with them and there's many things I could say, but two very quick things. It wasn't instantaneous. It didn't just happen that one day everything was fine and the next day they were in affairs. There was a process. It took a period of time. Started with maybe spending too long in a conversation and then too many conversations and starting to text. And slowly, slowly, they moved into position. And one of them said, I knew I should not be there. But once the gasoline was lit, there was no turning back. You think it could not happen, but it can happen. And then one of them said this, and he wasn't trying to excuse his behavior or anything. I should say that the first one is no longer pastoring and the second one is no longer leading the charity. They've paid a price. He said this, if I had stayed at the first church where I had more friends, maybe I would not have had an affair. And I say this, friends are so important. We need one another. And if you are struggling in any area, I don't just mean sexual, but I mean any area, and you have some friends, ask them to help you. And if you don't, I'll be standing down here at the end 
And if you want to come and talk to me, I'd be happy to pray with you. And there'll be people there to pray with you. Jesus said, it does matter. Compromise does matter. Seek the truth. Live the truth. Speak the truth. Gosh, I've got a bit lost where I am. I have no idea how I'm doing with time. He then gives an exhortation. Um, Gosh, I've lost where I am totally. This is not very good, is it? Um, He says, verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes. He is urging us to have an ear to hear. Next slide, please. Oh, I've got the warning there. Okay. Okay. I've obviously jumped around a bit. The warning, unless you repent, I will fight you with the sword of my mouth. The word of truth will ultimately be our judge. While we're here, the word of truth pricks our conscience, guides us, leads us, challenges us. But one day, the word of truth will actually be our judge. He says, I will come and fight against you with the word of my mouth. Compromise to Jesus is very important. He is shouting out a warning to the church. Do not compromise your faith. Okay, let's look at the exhortation. How do you really listen to my word? How do you really listen to the word of God? You know the story uh, that he told about the two builders. Fascinating story. Most of us know it very well. One builder built his house upon the rock. One built his house upon the sand. What was the difference? The difference was this. They both heard the word of God. That's the interesting thing to me. They both heard the word of God. But one heard the word of God and applied it. And he was the man who built his house upon a rock. One heard the word of God and didn't do anything with it. And he was like the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. How do you listen to the word of God? Do you come just to tick the box? Or do you come, Lord, speak to me today. I want to hear your voice speaking to me. I want to learn to live out the word of God. I want to learn to live out the truth of God. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. If you love me. He doesn't say, you will love me. No, I don't get that right. He said, I meant to say, you will obey me. He says, if you love me, you will obey me. How do we listen to the word of God? Are we listening, wanting to learn? Are we listening, wanting to put something into practice? Now we have the promise, verse 17. Uh, Next slide. The reward, hidden manna, a beautiful white stone with a new name. The person who overcomes... To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. Jesus strengthens, Jesus nourishes, 
Jesus satisfies. But he also says he will give us this wonderful, beautiful new white stone. I haven't got a clue what that's about, really. <laughs> and I don't know what the new name is. I have read and I've... But, but the closest that I can get is this. In the Old Testament, they had, for each tribe, they had 12 beautiful, precious stones. And the priest would carry these stones into the presence of God. Each precious stone represented one of the Old Testament groups, nations. And it seems to me to make sense that he has now put in another beautiful white stone. You have received a new name, a new holiness, a new beauty, a new glory, a new relationship with Jesus that only you know the personal intimacy, those times alone with him. And the white stone has a new name written on it. And I don't know exactly what he's written on it, but maybe it says, Ian belongs to Christ. Mary belongs to Christ. Philip belongs to Christ. Anne belongs to Christ. Or maybe it says, Christ is mine, and I am his, and his banner over me is love. Christ is mine and I am his and his banner over me is love. I don't really know what is written on the stone but the stone tells us that each one of us is very, very precious and it is to him who overcomes. Gosh. Um, how did they overcome? If you look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, it says this. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They overcame. How do you overcome? You overcome by all that Christ achieved on the cross. You overcome by embracing that truth. You overcome by standing on the truth of Christ and make it your own. You believe the truth, you take in the truth, you stand on the truth and you stake all on the belief that Christ was the truth. You're prepared to risk all for the fact that Christ is the truth. Very quickly, I was given a DVD just about a year ago, and it was a guy called Del, Dr. Del Tuckett, and it was called The Truth Project, and I wish I had more time to unpack this, but I saw something I had never seen before, and this man is lecturing in a seminar and he walks into the room and he puts on the board why did Jesus come? And people starting, started answering to save us, 
to redeem us, to forgive our sins, all very good. But that wasn't the answer he was looking for. There is a passage that says, for this reason I was born. For this reason I came into the world. This is the words of Jesus. Do you know what Jesus goes on to say? For this reason I was born, for this I came into the world. Do you know what it says? I didn't. I didn't. But he's standing before Pilate when he says these words, and you can find them in John 1837. Next slide, please. To testify... To what? To the truth. Jesus says, for this reason I was born. For this I came into the world. To tell you about the truth. What is on trial? If you testify, you're normally in a court. What is on trial? It's the truth that is on trial. Jesus came to tell us the truth. 75 times, apparently, it says, Jesus says, I came to tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. 25 times he says, truly, truly, I tell you. Jesus is on the witness stand for the truth. And if you look at it, it says at the last, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. That means there are two sides. There's those on the side of truth and there's those on the side of lies and falsehood. We are in a cosmic battle for the truth. I'd never seen this before. We are in a cosmic battle for the truth. On one side, we have the truth claims of God and on the other side, we have the lies of the world, the flesh and the devil. On one side, we have man created in the image of God. On the other, random chance evolution. On one side we have man in his fallen, sinful nature. On the other side we have man is basically good. On one side we have uh, man's greatest need is to be saved. And on the other hand we have man's greatest uh, need is self-fulfillment. We are in a wild, wide cosmic battle for the truth. I'd never seen it before. And Jesus is saying to this church, don't compromise the truth. It's really, really important. Can we look at the last slide? And I will be finished. I'm sorry, I've taken longer than I really meant to. If there's one thing I can communicate, it's this morning. We are in a cosmic battle for the truth. And I want to ask you, is the Lord asking you to be more active? Is he asking to be more active? In pursuing a knowledge of the truth, living for the truth, no compromise, no compromise. I am sold out for the truth. I will not compromise. Is he asking us to be more bolder in speaking the truth? I think Jesus is giving the church of Pergamum, a wake-up call.
we really are in a cosmic battle for the truth. And I'm just going to simply pray. And if you'd like to come and speak to me afterwards or you'd like to speak to somebody down here and say, yes, I want to be more active. I want to be a seeker of the truth. I want to live out the truth. I want to speak out the truth. And you'd like to tell somebody, I'll be here or people will be there. Thank you. I apologize. I think I've taken far longer than I should have done. Let's pray. Almighty God, I thank you that you are the truth. Truth resides in you. You are the fountainhead of truth. And I thank you that Jesus said, I am the truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. The Bible is the word of truth. Oh, Father, I pray that in our innermost beings you will strengthen us to seek the truth, to know the truth, to live the truth, to speak the truth. Oh, Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would really speak into our innermost beings that we will risk everything for the truth of Christ. In Jesus' name.